Amen. We are celebrating the advent of the highest name of all, and we sing hallelujah. Please join me in taking your scripture to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, and I would draw your attention to verses 12 through 15. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 12. This is the word of the Lord. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. This is the word of the Lord. Let he add his blessing to its reading. You can be seated. Children can be dismissed to children's church. There are five warning passages in the book of Hebrews. We are studying the second of those five. And this warning text fills chapter 3 and 4. The question that we have to answer from this text is what does it mean to be in the sheepfold? And what does it mean to remain in the sheepfold of Christ? The title I've given to the sermon is Beware of Deceit and Unbelief in Our Midst. The warning of this chapter gets to the who, the how, and the why. The who, the how, and the why of the rest of the chapter. Who is being warned? We're going to get to that, Lord willing, next week. Verse 16 through 19. It's important for us to see that the warning is to the congregation. The warning is to the congregation. The reason we know the author of Hebrews wants the congregation to be warned is because he illustrates the warning as being relevant to the congregation of Israel during the Exodus and their hard-heartedness. So the warning is to those in the congregation, and we're going to study that expressly next Sunday. How is this warning to be carried out? How is the need to be met? It's in verse 13. Exhort one another every day, as long as the days are these days. Exhort one another every day, as long as the days are these days. And then why? Why do this exhortation, also in verse 13, so that none of you, the congregation, will become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? Who, how, and why? To help organize our study of these verses, I've, I've put the, the main points into three C's, alliterated in three C's. I, I hope it helps you remember the main things the text is driving home. The first one is a caution. Look at verse 12. It's pretty clear to see right away, especially if you're holding a Holman Christian Standard Bible, it's even more vivid. But all of our translations, 
Make the point clear. There is a word of caution. Take care not to fall away from your faith in God. Literally, don't be apostate. Don't fall away from God. Take care not to fall away. That's the caution. The second main point, and the C, is a commission. We think very often about our great commission to go into the world and to proclaim Christ to those who have never heard. This text reminds us that there is a commission to be carried out among ourselves in the congregation. Verse 13. It is a commission to exhort each other in the congregation every day. Exhort each other every day. That's our commission. And then third, there is a condition. The condition is in verse 14 and 15. Christianity is only truly leading to everlasting rest if it perseveres to the last day. That's the condition. There's an if. It's pretty clear. In fact, if you just want to see the way this studies out, verse 12, take care. Verse 13, so verse 12, there's a big problem. Verse 13, but, here's the good news, you don't have to just be alarmed. There's a solution, but, exhort. And then in verse 14, if, for, we share in Christ, if, indeed, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Let me pray and then go through these three main C's and Lord willing, edify the church and grow together in Christ. Father, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful that it is a light to guide our path. We are grateful that it is the words of life. We are thankful that there is no error, no misguiding, no fallacy found in it. So we praise you that we can be nourished by the food that is your word today. As we preach here, we pray that you would be honored as we listen, as we humble ourselves to the authority of your word. We are jealous that your word would be identified as singular authority. There is so much noise. Father, it seems to come from every side to be attracted to the authority of some other thing other than your word. So I pray today that you would bind us to the authority of your word. And I pray not just for ourselves selfishly, but thank you, Father, so much for the congregations that we're familiar with all over our community that are doing just this same thing in a prayerful request that the preaching would be faithful and that the people of Christ would be edified. And so we pray for them likewise. In Jesus' name, amen. I told you there's going to be three C's, and here's the first one. It's a caution. And as I said, if you hold a Holman Christian Standard Bible, it's probably not the first or second or even third most uh, common Bible statistically in our congregation, but there's a pretty powerful expression, take care, brothers, lest... There be in you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living Christ. In verse 12, the Holman Christian Standard actually translates those first two words well and says, watch out, danger ahead. 
What is the danger that we must watch out for? It is the unbelieving heart. A failure to trust God and believe his promise. This is the essence of evil. To doubt God's promise. We saw it at the beginning. Did God truly say, isn't he just keeping back good things from you in the garden? And Eve was deceived in an evil, unbelieving heart. She doubted. Adam, unbelieving heart, doubted. As it relates to Hebrews, it's a reference back to the illustration from Numbers 14.11. The Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me and not believe me? How long will they go on not believing me in spite of all the signs that I have done before them? Be on guard, lest there be this evil in us. To go on doubting, even though we have seen the signs of God. Just as trust leads to obedience, and it does, I won't take time to illustrate it because I don't have time this morning, but when your children come to trust, they do things that you instruct. I'm in a moment of conflict right now, just a season of conflict, where Raven and I are debating who's smart between the two of us. Last night, I want this to drink before bed. I said, no, no, you can't have that drink before bed that has a lot of sugar in it. No, it doesn't. I said, yes, even I said, I know this has sugar in it. And he says, I'm smart. Just last night, I'm smart. Okay, we're not going to confront that right now, but we are going to contextualize that. You're a very smart five-year-old. And I held the jug to him, and I said, read this label. That's what I did. I said, read this label. I can't. I said, write. The fourth line says sugar, 25 grams. (laughs) He's not sure if he can trust that I'm actually telling him something good for him or if I'm just taking away something he really wants. Just like trust leads to obedience, lack of trust leads to disobedience. This heart is hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This comes from Psalm 95, describing the sin of the wilderness generation. The heart of unbelief leads to falling away from trust in God. Schreiner has a commentary on Hebrews, and he says this, A calloused heart will no longer hear the admonition of God. It will steel itself against the prodding of the conscience. What does Schreiner mean? He means something that you've maybe said before, and I think something maybe you've heard me say. Sin makes me dumb. The unrepentant sinner will mistakenly think that they are safely headed toward God's rest, when in fact they stand on the precipice of eternal damnation, not even able to see it. This was the history of the Jewish people. This is really important here that you understand the history of which Psalm 95 is referencing and Hebrews is referencing that existed in Numbers chapter 14. Israel, in Numbers 14, stands at a crossroads. Here it is. They're they're a little over 100 miles away from the border of Canaan. And they decide they're going to spy out the project. Send in the spies to find out 
if this land is ready to be taken by us. As they stand at that crossroad, they could believe the Lord and complete the conquest of Canaan, or they could doubt the promise. Now in that moment, Joshua and Caleb stand in faith and exhort them, don't fall away from the promises of God. But we know the story probably. The other spies come back and say, oh, there's a formidable opposition in the land. Oh, we don't believe. And what happens to the unbelieving generation? They do not enter into God's rest. And I would say to you, watch out. Watch out. This warning is illustrated by Numbers 14, repeated in the wisdom of Psalm 95, and then given to us in an epistle, giving the church instruction. This is didactic literature. This is dictating Christian requirement to us. Watch out, church. As I thought about the church, I think about so many ways that churches are shaped by their culture. And one of the things I think that needs to be addressed is that we might think the danger of falling away is a young person's danger. And I want to say, please don't assume any demographic guarantees you that your faith won't fail. Your faith's solidarity cannot depend on any demographic. I am male. I am female. I am young. I am old. I'm a new believer. I'm a mature believer. In fact, friend, one of the things that will expose unbelief is actually long exposure to the word. When Jesus was talking about the seeds that don't bear fruit, they exist, they're in the category of seed, they're in use of planting, but they don't exist in fruit bearing because of the persecution of the word. It's to have that long exposure to religion, come to certain comfortable and confident conclusions, and then, boom, in comes the word, and you go, no, I can't have it, and you fall away. You understand that for some people, it's the length of time they've been in religion that makes them most vulnerable to denying the authority of Scripture. You go to the person in their second week of their confession, you say, the word says this, and they go, oh, that's beautiful. I love that. Thank you for showing me. You go to a person in their 30th year, the word says this. Oh, I've never heard that before. I had some preachers I loved, and they used to say the opposite of that. The word says this. Yeah, but I saw on YouTube this. The word says this. Yeah, but... And it's the persecution of the word. It's the pressure of the authoritative word that's confronting with your religious aspiration or hope or comfort zone, and you go... The persecution of the word. So be careful, friend, that you don't assume that this warning relates most to the newcomer. Persecution of the word is a real danger. Take care. What will you do when the word says something different than what you hoped? I remember 
two times in my life. So just to point out, as I leave this point about warning, two times in my life, I have taken to a certain pastoral uh, exhortation to try to disprove what I thought was false two times in my life. Best laid plans of mice and men. Once I, I took to a book of the Bible to preach through it, day in and day out, Sunday in, Sunday out, because I was going to help show that there was an error that was creeping into churches. Twice. And both times, the word reigned. I thought, if I preach this book, it'll disprove that claim. And the word only showed me what I was trying to disprove was actually true. Two times. Two different times. Be careful that when you stand at that crossroads, will I believe or will I doubt? That's the warning. And it's real. And it's a warning to the Christian congregation. The people assembled right now in this room. So is that it? Is it just bad news? Watch out. Some of you won't make it to the day of rest. Or... Is there something that can be done? That's verse 13. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is excellent, excellent instruction for us today. We are to come alongside each other in church to exhort one another. The Greek word exhort, uh, it's, it's a two-part word, para. Kaleo, para, kaleo. It means this, the, the prefix is para. Para, come alongside and kaleo. It's kind of what it sounds like, call out. Come alongside and call out. Now here's, here's the wonderful question. If the picture is to come alongside one another in the congregation and call out, what are we supposed to say? Call out, okay? Ah, uh, loud noises. What are we supposed to say? Exactly. That's the question. Actually, the author of Hebrews is going to answer that question later in Hebrews chapter 25. Would you listen as I read? Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Don't neglect getting together. Some people do that. But encourage each other all the more as you see the day drawing near. Think about each other. How can I promote in you affection and function by being with you in the assembly? By encouraging one another. The call out here, come alongside and call out, congregation. The call out is encouragement that will guard the heart of belief from becoming hard. Specifically, it is to call out the faithfulness of God. This is the positive remedy to the negative warning. Watch out. Positively, call out. To guard us from the danger we must take care not to fall into, we call out. Church fathers seem to understand this characteristic of congregation. One of them writes, as by nature we are prone to fall, we have need of various helps. Unless our faith is repeatedly encouraged, it lies dormant. Unless it is warmed, it grows cold. 
Unless it is aroused, it gets numb. The author of Hebrews, therefore, wishes them to stimulate one another by mutual encouragement so that Satan will not steal into their hearts and by falsehood lead them away from God. Exhort each other, verse 13, every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Call out to each other, remember the faithfulness of God, so that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Is sin deceitful? Let me, let me just categorically, I think everyone's going to nod their head here. Romans 16, 18. Paul warns against the deceit of a false teacher. For such people do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but they serve their own appetites. False teachers will deceive us. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8 says that worldly philosophies are deceitful. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 5 tells us that the counsel of the wicked is deceitful. And we would probably say, oh, yeah, there's some bad stuff. We would, if, if I may, if I may just prorate this, we would go to Colossians 2.8 and say, oh, worldly philosophies, those are so anti-Christ, that's bad. We would talk about other teachers, and we'd be like, well, there's this one guy that I follow on Twitter, and it's everywhere, it's everywhere. And you know how easy false teaching is to share with each other? It used to be you had to take people to the false teacher. You don't do that anymore. We would say, the counsel of the wicked is deceitful. Maybe, maybe we're less aware of the danger. The counsel of the false teacher. Why would we be less aware of the danger of the counsel of the wicked? Because sometimes the counsel of the wicked is just what we really wanted to hear. Right? That is true of the human condition. The days will come when people will heap to themselves teachers who rub behind their ears. So therefore, it's a little challenging for us to see that some of that counsel that we really hoped to hear was actually deceit. It's hard for us. I don't always discern it well. But here's the thing, friend. It gets worse. It gets worse. Maybe you heard me talk about false teachers and the wicked and all the deceit, worldly philosophies, and you thought, but I think I can navigate the minefield. Oh, but the Bible says I can't. You see, the problem is my heart is the most deceitful. My heart's the most deceitful. Maybe one of the most well-known texts that assure this is Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can understand? Oof. Ephesians 4, 22, our manner of life apart from Christ is corrupt through our own deceitful desires. So my heart and the way I live is deceitful. And, and I think that I'm going to navigate the minefield of false teachers, of worldly philosophies, of wicked counsel. How? How will you navigate that minefield? Well, my heart will lead me. Oh, whoop, Jeremiah. Well, the, the way that I live, I'll live by certain character and morals. Well, no. You see the problem. My heart and my desires are deceitful on top of the deceitfulness of sin that comes into my life. The Bible tells me the 
devil is a great deceiver who beguiles men and women into folly and unbelief. He beguiled even Eve in the garden. He even masquerades as an angel of light, 2 Corinthians 11. I can't even trust my heart and my own desire, and now I live in the presence of real danger. What will I do? First, would you be that follower of Christ who is led by the word to simply say the problem is real and you are not the answer? Would you just be that follower of Christ? There is a real danger and I am not the answer. What I mean by that is would you realize that sin is a deceiving power like a pack of wolves surrounding a flock darting in to pick off targets one at a time? Would you realize that? The wisdom of Scripture then leads us to realize and seek for the exhortation of one another. Simon Kistemaker says this, Believers have a corporate and individual responsibility to care for the spiritual well-being of their fellow man. They must consider this responsibility a holy obligation and exhibit utter faithfulness in it. What did Cain want to communicate when he said, am I my brother's keeper? He wanted to communicate that if Abel has been lost, it is not my fault. And the rest of the Bible answers Cain's, answers Cain's wicked question. Yes, you are your brother's keeper. And the world will know you are disciples of Jesus Christ if you lovingly keep and care for each other. The great... Allegory of the Christian life, Pilgrim's Progress. How many of you have read a portion of Pilgrim's Progress? You're familiar with it. You have flipped through its pages. Maybe you didn't complete it. A lot of us. One of the earliest story, Christian stories I remember my parents reading to me as a child. John Bunyan shows his understanding of this importance we're studying today about godly fellowship. At one point in the journey that he narrates, a man Christian comes across a companion who goes by the name Hopeful. Bunyan says, quote, they entered into brotherly covenant and agreed to be companions. It's a, it's a pleasant description of friends. And what happens? Christian and Hopeful journey together. Their companionship was profitable. Soon they come across a man named Demas. And Demas tempts Christian and Hopeful and says, come over here, look at these treasures of the world. And Hopeful says, oh, those treasures are delightful. And he starts to wander toward the treasures. But then Christian says, no, I've heard about this. It's a trap. Do not go. Let us keep on our way. And the two companions go on safely. That's a wonderful example how the character Hopeful on his own, would have wandered into destruction. But in fellowship, Christian is a blessing to guard his friend. This is the kind of help we are to give one another and receive from one another, each of us being helped by the strength and faith of our brothers and sisters. So would you 
Would you simply humble yourself to say, there is real danger and I cannot navigate it alone. I think if we as a congregation can come to that point, I think the protection assurance multiplies. If we can just earnestly say, the danger is real. Wolves surround the sheepfold. And on my own, I cannot have assurance of security from the deceitfulness of sin. Let me say two things applicationally for you as, as we go away from this. In the text, in verse 13, the first thing we see about this warning, this exhorting each other, is that it must be every day. It is urgent. It is a daily need. The text highlights the word from Psalm 95, 7, today. Today. Exhort each other. As long as it's still called this day, as long as the days are like these days, not the day to come, exhort each other. Why would that urgency about every day be so important in exhorting a confessing believer to keep believing? Why would every day matter? Well, let me illustrate that. In the Exodus, the people had spent two years, almost to the day, on the Exodus. When they send out the spies, they were celebrating their third Passover. They had celebrated one in Egypt, one on the way, and now they're celebrating the third. As they celebrate the third, they have been some 700 plus days in Exodus. 700 days of belief, and now comes another day. Just another day. 700 plus, approximately 730 days had passed. The spies saw the land. They come back to the people and report. And what happened on that day? The deceitfulness of sin, an unbelieving heart, and apostasy from God. On that day, 729 days of believing. And on that day, an unbelieving heart fell away from God. That's why David picks up on it in Psalm, and that's why the author of Hebrews picks up on it, because it's so urgent for us. This is an urgent everyday responsibility. So when the people, after 729 days of believing, fell away by the deceitfulness of sin, the Lord swore that in their unbelief, they would not be allowed to enter into his rest. The day of their final rest had not arrived. There were still days that are today. It is still today, friend. The day when mutual exhortation and encouragement is needed. Every day matters when it comes to persevering faith. There is no such thing as an inconsequential day. That very day that is regarded as inconsequential can be the day of unbelief. Secondly, not only is it urgent, but it's loving. The author of Hebrews is pastoring the people. May, may I suggest... Oh, 
I think, I think this verse, I think verse 13, is one of the most countercultural verses that we're going to come across maybe in all of Hebrews. Because of its magnifying of the one anotherness. And we're not very one another. We're, we're not. We're just by nature, we're pretty independent people. And therefore, because we're independent, we want to respect the independence of other people. And one of the ways we defend that independence is by respecting privacy. So, if I were to hold up two texts in front of you, if I were to take you to Psalm, uh, someone in the room is going to know it, 93, Lord, see if there be any wicked way in me, search my heart, oh God. So, anybody? It's in the 90s. It's Psalm something. It's, it's in the Bible. Okay. So, <laughs> search me, oh God, and see if there be this wicked way in me. Now, I disagree. Is it? Is it really? 51? Anybody affirm that? I was sure it was 90-something. All right, you finish out. I'll go sit down. Oh, no, just kidding. <laughs> Thank you, Gary. So, search me, O oh God, and see if there be this wicked way in me, right? If I hold that text up in front of you, you will say, I'm willing to do that. God, between you and I, privately, see if there be some unbelief in my heart. Now, if I hold this other text up in front of you and say, each of you poke into each other's lives and exhort them not to forget the faithfulness of God. Remember and celebrate and have your joy fortified by the faithfulness of God. Now you say, ooh, how about just God and I go over and see if there be a wicked way in my heart? I don't really want to get into that. That's very uncomfortable, right? And so that's just, I'm, I'm only saying, I'm not condemning, I'm saying it's all of us. This text is going to force us to undo what some of our Western thinking tells us we're supposed to do. Be private and respect privacy. You'll be fine on your own. It's very dangerous. But rather, as long as it's called today, love each other enough to say and to hear the things you need to. Christianity is not an individual, but a team endeavor. One more quick word before I leave this point of commission. This is our commission. One more quick point. You might not only be fighting against the cultural pressure, privacy, isolation, don't, don't embarrass anyone, um, don't ask too hard a question, don't put up with too hard a question. You, that's cultural. But it might be something else too. You might be sitting here in the room right now thinking, I'm not cut out for that. That's not my job. Sunday school teachers can do that. Elders can do that. You know, the, 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 the ushers, the valets, they're, they're all, they're, those people do that stuff. I'm not cut out for that. Let me just read this. Who is called to exhort whom? Everyone who has faith in God exhort everyone who has faith in God so that no one who has faith in God becomes faithless. If you say, today I believe God, I believe the faithfulness of God, I believe the promises of God, then you must say that very thing to someone else who's in the moment of being tempted to say, I'm not sure I still believe the promise of God. Everyone who today believes, say to someone, do you still believe? 
Do you still see? Do you still see the faithfulness of God? And this is perhaps the most countercultural activity of the church in our culture, but absolutely essential. Absolutely essential. Okay, before I go into the third, you might have heard the warning and thought, yeah, that's real. You might have heard the commission and thought, yeah, that's good, but if I don't warn people and they have several days of unbelief and they step into the day that's not today, but tomorrow, in one of their weak moments of unbelief, I mean, really, what's it change? Right? Like, if you believed ever, then what you thought on the day when today ended and tomorrow started, does that matter? And the author of Hebrews shepherds the people to say it absolutely matters because there's a condition to believing. Okay, let's get into number three, the condition to believing. Verse 14 and 15. We have come to share in Christ if indeed. So just, friends, I didn't put the if in there. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion. I'm, I'm, I'm shocked how odd that verse is in modern evangelicalism. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. I think that there might be this opinion that is somewhat popular in current evangelicalism that would say, who cares about today? I prayed the sinner's prayer when I was five. Who cares? I sat with a woman at her table and she explained to me how her husband wanted nothing to do with Jesus Christ, but she was sure he was a believer because he taught Sunday school 20 years ago. He, he wanted nothing to do with Jesus. But that was common evangelical thinking. Today, if you hear his voice, not hear, today, who cares? It's amazing. It's appalling. The word, look at this word. For we come to share. Share. It's, again, I'm not trying to sell Holman Christian Bibles, but I'm just saying the Holman Christian really magnifies this word share. We have come to share in Christ. The Holman Christian does well at saying we have become companions who share in Christ together if becoming companions. Now, listen. Okay, I really want you, I really want you to hear this, I think, uh, the next three minutes is going to be the most doctrinally formative part of what I'm going to teach today, the doctrinally formative part, okay? And here's what I mean. For we come to share in Christ. It's a perfect tense. Perfect tense in Greek describes what has completed action with ongoing effects, okay? So it's like settled, okay? We come to share. Perfect tense describing what's done. Meaning, upon our adoption, we are companions. But the Hebrew pastor doesn't say the perfect tense of partnering with Christ, companions with Christ, doesn't assure us of what doesn't stay that way. If you have completed with ongoing effect, if 
he gives the condition of a perfect tense, which is very unusual. It is, I admit. A condition to a perfect tense? If indeed we hold fast, then we are companions. Now there's tension in that. For me, I wrestled with that. I will admit, I started to write it and explain away the sharp edges of that statement. And I had to stop myself and delete a couple paragraphs. Because I thought, but wait, I'm reading in my biblical theology to that verse. Instead of first handling the verse and its nearest context, and then seeing, does this contradict biblical theology? So here's the systematic ten- or a semantical tension. We know that biblical theology says all of Christ's true people persevere to the end. You could go to Romans 8. I could re-preach Romans 8, and I would tell you for sure that no one takes you away from God in Christ. Absolutely. However, the pastor of Hebrews is making a conditional statement, and we do not need to round off the edge of the condition. We do not need to somehow strike the if because it doesn't set well with Twitter. It is preferable to read the condition in this context of Hebrews and all of its conditional statements. The pastor of Hebrews is admonishing believers to persevere until the end, so that. So that. Unlike the 729 days of persevering, they walked through the wilderness by faith, 729 days, ready to observe the third of their Passovers, and a report came back that said it's doubtful we can conquer the land. And they fell away. And God swore, that people does not enter into my rest. All of their yesterdays mattered not. So, listen close. Here's the doctrine. The author of Hebrews is not arguing here that true believers lose their adoption. Neither is the argument the author of Hebrews, arguing that everyone living in the congregation is assured of rest as long as it's still today. He is not arguing that everyone living in the congregation is assured of rest. Believers share in Christ if they hold firm the confidence, again, another word translated well, reality, that they first held in Christ at the beginning until the end. So, I have no problem listening to you tell me about the moment you first uttered the words of belief. No problem at all. As long as the same utterance you uttered then is the utterance you utter now. But if you tell me I uttered it once and what I utter today doesn't matter, I would take you to Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 13, 14, and 15. It absolutely matters today. Verse 15 restates the main point by citing again Psalm 95. The call to faith is for today. If the readers have heard God's voice today, and yesterday's response to his voice is not in question, today's is. This is precisely what the wilderness generation did. They had heard and they had believed. But then, on the threshold of the completed exodus, they were finally challenged 
do you still believe, even though some of these spies say it's dangerous? And they said on that day, we do not believe. And therefore, all of their previous believing did not matter. But they did not inherit the rest of God. So, what is it to be and to remain in the sheepfold? To be in the sheepfold is to be our brother's and sister's keeper. To remain in the sheepfold is to have a faith that is encouraged by one another to continue all the way to the end. The gift of a believing heart is a gift from God. Romans 9.18 So then God has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. However, we know that the believing heart is a gift of God ministered to by the evangelism of the Christian people. Likewise, the ministry of a persevering heart of faith is a gift from God administered through the life of the church of Jesus Christ. Jeremiah 31 says this. This this is the new covenant. I'm, I'm landing here in the new covenant. I'm going to communion. I need you to hear this. I will make a new covenant, not like the covenant that they broke. This is the covenant that I will make. I'll put my law in their heart. So there, there's a believing heart. I'll put my law in their heart. And I will be their God and they will be my people. And then, no longer will each one say, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. There's a day coming when it's tomorrow, when you don't have to say, do you know God? Do you know his faithfulness? Do you still believe he is good and right and just and kind? And Do you still believe today? There's a day coming you won't ever have to ask that question again. But that's tomorrow. Not today. The new covenant of Christ's blood promises a day of rest is coming. We will no longer say to each other, know the Lord, for they will all know the Lord. Only when we are at last in our final rest will we be able to stop saying, know the Lord. From now until then, we exhort one another as long as it is today. We say urgently, lovingly, Know the Lord. And we say it to each other, the congregation. New hearts are the work of God. Hearts of faith kept are the work of God through the life of the church together.